your Bibles, please turn to the book of Romans today, and you are allowed to, right now, go to the back and grab a copy of the Romans um, ESV, the journal Bible that we have. Go right now. Follow Bill's lead. Um, you can give an IOU. You can take it. Never pay. We don't have any more. They're all gone. I'm sorry. Now, Bill has to make that long walk back. But you know what? I got you covered, brother. You do have this one. This has got your name on it. We'll have more for next week. Well, I'm glad to know. I think we had like 35 out there, so they must have gone. Thank you. Good. Romans is where we're at. If you came to the New Testament with fresh eyes, which is difficult for us to do, let's be honest, we don't have the privilege of, well, it's actually a great privilege, amen, to be able to be here and hear God's word week after week. But what I'm speaking of is, Having fresh eyes when we read our Bibles is difficult for those that are regularly in the Bible, which you should be. And what I mean by that is, if you had fresh eyes, when you open up your New Testament, you're going to see that these first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are consumed with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as you see that, they introduce you to the facts, they introduce you to the person and work, of Jesus. They're not biographies. We don't have a biography of Jesus. What we have is four authors. The first three we call the synoptic writers or the synoptic gospels. And they're using a lot of the same material, but they have a specific theme, each of them. And so we have then the book of John. And all of them are consumed with the facts about Jesus. But then we come to the book of Acts. When you come to the book of Acts, what do you discover? Well, this is the only history book in our New Testament, and the only history book in the New Testament describes what Christians are supposed to do with the facts about the person and work of Jesus. What are they to do with them? Chatter. Acts 1.8 puts it this way, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we can learn from the first generation of Christians that they took the facts of the person and work of Jesus, the gospel, and they preached it. They proclaimed it. So what would I take from that? Normal Christianity is chattering the gospel to every creature, yes? So then we, we're not done. After the book of Acts, it actually concludes with Paul doing the same thing as he's in house arrest in Rome. He says in Acts 28, 31, or Luke says this, he lived there, Paul, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. There have been surveys, and I've mentioned these surveys to you before, among evangelicals or Christians and surveys with questions like, why don't you share the gospel more often with your friends, family, and coworkers? The answer to that has been, the number one choice is because people are hesitant to share the gospel because they're afraid they're going to be asked a question they can't answer. Now, there were a variety of choices, but the number one reason for not sharing the gospel, according to the survey, was somebody might stump me. We don't want to be the chump that stumped. I mean, they might ask me, where did Cain get his wife? I mean, and then what would I say? I'm not so sure that that's the question they're most concerned about, but Let's not forget that the New Testament doesn't end with the book of Acts. We have 21 letters called epistles. Now, again, this is not the wives of the apostles. 
Uh, epistles means letters. These are letters that the Spirit of God inspired through the apostles. And these letters go from all the way from Romans to Jude, and then we have the final consummation of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. Now, why do I tell you that? Before we start our study of the book of Romans, you have to remember why it's there. The Lord Jesus didn't just give us four Gospels. He gave us the entirety of the New Testament. One of the mistakes that's being made too often today amongst Christians and Bible teachers is to act like all we have are the Gospels. Now, I praise God for the Gospels. You too? But that's not all we have. You see, the epistles explain the person and work of Jesus. You may remember in the 90s, it was big, WWJD. What would Jesus do, yes? And that was, every, that was the craze. What would Jesus do? Well, actually, I don't know if that's the best question because we have the answer. All the epistles tell you, this is what Jesus would do. <laughs> this is how you're supposed to live out the life of a believer. This is what it looks like. One of the dangers of acting like the Gospels are all that we have is you can have the pretext for saying whatever you want to say. I mean, the Gospels are narratives, and we love them for that reason, right? But sometimes you can take the Gospels and you act like that there's no epistles to explain the person and work of Christ, and I can pretty much say anything I want to. For instance, I can go to that beloved narrative or that beloved parable in Luke 15 about the prodigal son and I can suggest or even implicate or preach that because Jesus only hung around with sinners and publicans that there really is no need for the church because we should just be hanging with sinners all the time, giving them the gospel. Well, if all I had was Luke 15, I might go, ding, 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 ding. It's an epiphany. That's true. That's not all we have. We have the epistles that tell us about something called the church. <laughs> That God's people are to gather on Lord's Day and be equipped and edified, and then they're to scatter and evangelize the publicans and the sinners. Yes? So we have explanation. And we need to be careful that we don't allow the Gospels to be pretext for all kinds of things. I've been hearing things of late with just pulling out the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a wonderful parable. But stand alone without any other scripture telling us what loving our neighbor looks like in the epistles, we can really get untethered to a biblical code. So I want to encourage you, as we launch into this study of the book of Romans, it's no accident that right after the first history book, we're told we're going to get this longest epistle. Romans is the longest letter Paul ever wrote. It has seven 1,100 words. I know you wanted to know that. It takes about 22 pages of my Bible, probably about the same of yours. But Chrysostom, that golden tongue preacher, said this about the book of Romans. The book of Romans ought to be read to you aloud twice a week. Parents, maybe we should, we should start doing this. And it would make you a wonderful Christian because of it. So maybe you'll take the challenge of reading Romans out loud twice a week to your family. This morning, we only want to look at the first four verses, and if you'll look at your copy of the scriptures with me, it's page 939 in your pew Bibles. Here's the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you read much church history, you will note quickly that most of the men of God or women of God that you will read about have been shaped, revived, and set ablaze and afire by the book of Romans. My prayer is the same thing will happen to us. Amen? That God will use this wonderful book of explaining the gospel. And here's what I want us to see as we start this study. Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel anywhere in your Bible. You say, well, it's got 16 chapters. It's got to be. But I was talking with someone earlier, and they were saying, you know, the book of Romans is intimidating to me. I get into it, and it's like so much is coming. It's almost like a fire hydrant, and it's true. Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel in the Bible. And this intro actually is from verse 1 to 17. So if you're taking notes, you would notice that the intro of the book of Romans is the first 17 verses. It has a greeting, a standard greeting, then the theme and then those that are receiving the letter and Paul's relationship to them. This morning, I just want to point out, before we see some baptisms, we're praising God for that, and have some new members join us, our church family here, I want to share three essential virtues that are found here of the gospel in these four verses. The first one is the origin of the gospel. Where did it come from? The second is the promise of the gospel, and finally, the person of the gospel. First one is the origin of the gospel. Where did it come from? Paul says he's a slave, a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of who? You got to see it in your text. The gospel of who? The gospel of God. So Paul says he's been set apart. Now those two words, set apart, again, if you're taking notes, which is a great thing for you to do, you could write down that this is the same word we get the English word Pharisee from. Remember Paul in Philippians 3 talked about he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Now Pharisee meant a separate one or a holy one. Now they viewed holiness as what you were separate from. Oftentimes believers only think of holiness in that category. And sometimes the only way we ever express holiness is the things that we don't do are the things that we don't participate in. Now certainly that's a part of holiness, but that is not how it's used here. And interestingly enough, a previous Pharisee is going to speak of holiness this way. He's been Phariseed or set apart for something, not from something. Now, obviously, to be set apart for something, you have to be set apart from something. But the point here is he's been set apart specifically for the gospel of God, but he says this gospel is whose gospel? God's gospel. It wasn't invented by man. Paul didn't come up with it. In Galatians 1, he says, I didn't go and speak to the other apostles and confer. Say, hey guys, here's what I'm preaching. What are you guys preaching? Can we get together? <laughs> None of that. This was revealed by God. It's his good news. So we want to see here that the entire message of Romans is about God. You say, wow, that was underwhelming, Pastor. But I think sometimes we read books of the Bible and we get so focused on themes like the righteousness of God, justification by faith and grace. All of these things are in Romans, yes? But really, the actor in Romans, as all throughout Scripture, is God. God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. 
everything Paul touches on in the letter is brought back to God. And he says here that the origin of this good news, it came from who? God. Now, the word gospel, you don't need any help with that, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. It means good news. It means to declare good news. We get the word evangelical from this word or evangelism from this word. It literally means to herald or to announce something, and that's what it is. It's God's good news that he appointed, set apart Paul and other apostles, and now commissioned us as followers of Christ to herald out this good news. Paul is saying, this is my mission in life. I'm a bond slave to Jesus in order to proclaim the gospel of God. Now, this is really important. As God's people, we need to realize that the gospel is news to be proclaimed. Now, I've helped you with this before, and some of you are too mature to participate with me, but here's the gospel. Get your hands up, class. Christ died for my sins and was raised. Okay, some of you, that's the most physical you'll ever get in church, okay? Here's the gospel. Christ died for my sins and was raised. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Those are events. Those are facts. This is God's gospel, and we're supposed to proclaim it. But here's the challenge we have, and particularly we have in the church today, and I believe Romans is, is such what we need, is, is such balm for the soul and edification for the heart in these times. But what we have today is, even amongst Christians, a confusion between the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. These have become blurred. Now, of course, the Great Commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as your what? As yourself. So, so what's happened in Christian culture and even in churches is this idea that gospel, great commission, and loving my neighbor are the same thing. So if I do anything to love my neighbor, it's the same thing as proclaiming the gospel. That's not true. See, the great commission is proclaiming some facts, some events. They're God's events. They're God's gospel. It's God's gospel. Whereas loving my neighbor is actually an extension or an implication of the gospel. This is what gospel people do. This is how they live their lives. Here's the problem. If everything about loving your neighbor is the same as gospel, that means that we're missional. And you hear a lot about that these days. And not to be nasty about it, but if everything's mission, nothing's mission, right? So, so, so if everything that I do or you do in loving my neighbor is the same thing as proclaiming the gospel, then there's no such thing as proclaiming the gospel. I'll give you, a, for instance, last week we had a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I do want you to know, as much as I want you to be, and I want to be involved in the pro-life movement and being a a voice for the unborn. That is not gospel proclamation, okay? So, so being pro-life activist is not the same as Great Commission, yes? Are you with me? You tracking with me? So he says this is the gospel of God. It's a set of facts. It's a set of events. It's God's gospel. Being active in a soup kitchen or caring for the poor or seeking social justice or seeking racial justice, those are all implications of the gospel, but they're not the the gospel. Okay, are we with me? So this is the gospel of God, and Paul says, I've been a set apart from that. I think this is really important for us right now, because if we're not careful, we begin to just blend anything that's done that's domestically helpful, 
or kind, and we say, that's gospel proclamation. It's not. See, Paul says, I was set apart for the gospel of God. So that's the origin. This good news came from who? Okay, I'm going to preach that point again if you don't give me a better answer. <laughs> it's the gospel of who? Okay, it was better. You don't want to go over that point again. I see you. hear you. It's the promise of the gospel, secondly. So Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel in the Bible. First of all, we see the origin. Secondly, the promise of the gospel. Look at the next phrase. Set apart for the gospel of God, which, that pronoun, the antecedent, is the gospel of God. You'll see it in verse 2. He. Who's the he? God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So I want us to see that according to this text and multiple other texts, the gospel that we see in the New Testament was not plan B. Some Bible students chop their Bible up so much that it's almost, you almost get the idea that when we come to the New Testament that we have this new thing, that plan A didn't work out, so the gospel's plan B. No, 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 no. Ephesians 1 says that this was happened, this was decided before the foundation of the world, okay? So the gospel's not plan B, it's actually a fulfillment of a promise. And those promises are found in your Old Testament. Hebrews 1.1 says it this way. In these last days, or in the days before, we have heard from God through the prophets of old. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. You see, the Old Testament is concealed what the New Testament reveals. There is not this chop. There is not this separation. There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why is that important? It's important for us to realize that the gospel that we proclaim now is the gospel that was promised in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in the New. This is not a new redemptive attempt by God. I speak as a fool. This is not a second approach. This is not something that is a plan B. It's actually plan A. That's why when you open up your New Testament and we're in Matthew, how does it start? To some of your chagrin, with a genealogy. Oh, my Bible reading today is a genealogy. But what should you, you, you should be thinking this. He's the son, here's your king, Jesus. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of who? David. And the author of Matthew, Matthew, is saying that there's continuity between your Old Testament and your what? Your New Testament. This is all fulfillment of all of those promises. That's why in Mark, he's quoting from Malachi and Isaiah. You realize in the book of Romans, perhaps you don't realize this. I've been studying all week. You haven't. But there are 60 different quotations, references from the Old Testament in the book of Romans. He quotes from 13 Old Testament books. He quotes from the law, the prophets, and the writings. So he's reminding us every section of the Old Testament he quotes in the New Testament. He quotes in the book of Romans. So folks, there is a teaching going on right now. I don't encourage you to look it up. It made headlines last year, but made headlines for all the wrong reasons, in my opinion. This was stated from a pulpit and in a book from a well-known pastor in the South who said, we need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. If we're going to be the kind of Christians that thrive and spread the gospel and for people to understand the gospel, we need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament. Wrong. 
Why would the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, quote the Old Testament 60 times if we need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament? Obviously, that's horrible, heretical advice. We need to be more like John Bunyan, who said, and quoted by Spurgeon, we need to be so thoroughly biblical to have so much Bible in our hearts and our minds that if someone cut us, we would bleed Bibline. Did you even know that was a blood type? What we see here is the Old Testament is prophecy, promises, fulfilled, and the book of Romans is saying all of these things were promised before and now they're fulfilled. There's one passage of Scripture from a little book called Habakkuk. Say it with me, Habakkuk. You haven't said that in a while. Say it again, Habakkuk. He uses the verse from Habakkuk, chapter 2, the just shall live by faith. That same verse is used in three New Testament books. And it's basically a theme. Part of that phrase is the theme of the book. The just shall live by faith is used in Romans. And the emphasis is on the just in the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith is also quoted in Galatians. And the focus in Galatians is shall live. It's also quoted in the book of Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. And what do you think the emphasis is in Hebrews? By faith. You see, the Old Testament is not something we need to be unhinged from. It's what we need to do is realize that all of those promises are being fulfilled. I want you to do something with me because you look tired. I'm being honest, you look tired. So I want you to take your Bible, and if you just got that Romans edition, you're going to need to get a full Bible. I want you to go to the middle of your Bible. Just do what I'm doing right now. Please, play along. I want you to go and I want you to hold that middle page. You probably have a white page, one, two, or three pages like this. You have your Old Testament on your left, your, your, your New Testament on your right. Okay, I can see you, those of you that refuse to participate. I can see you. You're going to get a failing grade. Okay, so I want you to do this. I just want you to do this for more of a memory device. But once you get there, look up. Put your pens down and look up. So on the left, on the left, you have 921 chapters. On the right, you have 260 chapters. Now, of course, you've got 39 books on the left, which is 921 chapters. And on the right, you have 27 books, and you have 260 chapters. Now, one way to look at that is two blocks. I've got this block of books over here, and I've got this block of books over here. That's not the way we should view our Old Testament. In fact, you can go back to Romans. The way you should view your Old Testament is this way. The Old Testament vision, the roots and the trunk and the boughs of the tree. But when we get to the New Testament, we start seeing the blossoming and the fruit. All of it is being fulfilled. And as we come to the book of Romans, I don't want us to miss what he says here in Romans chapter 1, verse 2. He says he promised all these things beforehand. So Romans is the most thorough explanation of the gospel in the Bible. The origin of the gospel is of God. The promise of the gospel is from the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament promises are now fulfilled, and we see those exposited in the book of Romans. I want us to finish with the person of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? You'll notice verse 3 says, concerning his what? His son. He's saying that this gospel is not just a set of facts, Although it is, it's about a what? A person. Do you see that? 
So this gospel, this gospel of God is about a person, and he's going to give three descriptors real quickly in this opening four verses of the Son. So concerning whose Son? Are you with me? God's Son. Here they are. The first one is his humanity. If you're taking notes, his humanity. He says concerning his Son who was descended from who? According to the flesh. Now, Paul's going to bring us down to David. And he's going to say that he had a human nature. That Jesus was both eternally God, but he was completely human. Now, for some of us, we may say, this is old stuff. We just went through this during, Nativity, during Advent and during the Christmas season. But I don't want us to miss this, because if we miss this, we will not enjoy the wonderful benefit of the study of the scriptures if we don't see that our eternal Son of God, God's eternal Son of God, our eternal Christ, became a human. And one of the surefire ways to know if you appreciate the humanity of Jesus is by answering a simple question, do not answer out loud, and here's the question, do you pray? I ask you again, but I want to preface it again. How would you know that you truly believe and cherish and appropriate the humanity of the eternal Son of God becoming a human? Do you pray? You say, well, how would that be a test to know if I appreciate it? Well, listen to Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to be sympathetic with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, who was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. So the way you know, and I know, that I appreciate that the eternal Son of God became a human is, do we pray, do we understand and appreciate His humanity? He had the same biochemical composition as our own. He had the same anatomy. He had the same physiology. He was touchable, woundable flesh. So what should that do for us? Do you realize that the first heresy in the church was not questioning Jesus' deity. It was actually questioning, questioning his humanity. It's called docetism. And this heresy was, that's too messy for us to believe that God actually became a human who has his toenails clipped and his nose needs blowing. I mean, and his hair, when he wakes up, is a mess. I mean, I, I can't think of God that way. Yet, it's a wonderful way to think of God that he became a feeling, relating, thinking, touchable, woundable, human. He, he said, of the seed of David, or of the flesh, he descended from David. So let me just ask you this. When you think of Jesus and his humanity, that he became a human, the incarnation, do you realize that he can relate to everything you go through? Just take, for instance, are you ever exhausted? Let me say, I am right now. He was so exhausted, he fell asleep on a boat. He was pressed by competing priorities. Have you ever had loved ones who deeply resented and were resistant to the gospel after multiple opportunities and sharing of the gospel to them? Jesus' own brothers thought he was crazy. Do you ever work in an ungodly environment? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Don't need to say any more. He witnessed sin, he listened to sin, he saw sin, he saw disease, he saw poverty. 
Have you ever been part of the tensions of disloyalty with other believers or even people on your own team? Jesus knows what that's like. There was Judas and basically all of his apostles. You ever felt moved by the difficulty and plight of people or angry at the injustice in the world? Our Lord Jesus did. I mean, he looked at the sheep, he looked at the people, and he said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he was also the one where when the Jews were trying to sell sacrifices to these poor Gentiles in the Gentile court, he goes in there and flips the tables over and takes a whip and runs them out of the temple, not once, but twice. He knows what it feels like to be angry at injustice and abuse in our world. Have you ever felt grief so much so that it was paralyzing? Our Lord Jesus, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, wept. Finally, have you ever suffered injustice from the hands of others? Or ever felt like not only are you forsaken by those who you thought would never forsake you, but you feel forsaken by God? Ever had moments, spaces like that? Our Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, so if you and I appreciate the humanity of Jesus, it will affect our prayer life. Listen to Hebrews 4.16, after 4.15. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, this God of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So do you appreciate the humanity of Jesus, that he became a touchable, woundable, thinking, feeling, relating God-man? Do you believe that he understands you? He gets it. He's sympathetic with your struggle. This is the Jesus. This is concerning God's son, so his humanity. But before I leave that, I just want to point out something. Do you notice this? He is of the son and lineage, according to the flesh, of who? David. Now, I just want to do a little test. When you hear the word David and you think of David's life, what are the two stories in the life of David that immediately come to your mind? First one is what? David and Goliath. Yep, that was my favorite as a kid, along with Samson. You know, he kills the giant, then he cuts his head off, and he goes through town holding him up by his hair. I mean, that was like violent, but it was cool. But he, he killed the giant. He did it in the name of the Lord. The other one, though, is not David and Goliath, but David and Bathsheba. Don't you see it? The greater David fulfilled this prophecy. He, he came and took care of our enemies and he became our sin. So, so like the younger, weaker David who took out Goliath, our Jesus took out our greatest enemies and the way he did that was become our sin, our Bathsheba moments, our sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he became Jesus Sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Don't you praise God for the greater David who, who came and took care of the enemy and he became our sin. Not only his humanity, but finally, or last two, his deity. We're told that he was declared to be the son of God at his resurrection from the dead. Real quickly, what he's saying here is not that he became the son of God here, he was always the son of God. He was eternally the Son of God. He was the Son of God in the womb of Mary. He was the Son of God 
in the temple when he was talking with the religious leaders at his baptism in the carpenter's shop, on the cross, at the resurrection. He was always the son of God. But there was a moment in the life and ministry of Christ where it became obvious to everyone, and it was at his resurrection. The word declared here, we get our English word horizon from. He's saying the lines were set out. Remember the life and ministry of Jesus? It was always like he was trying to keep it a secret who he was. I mean, his own mom at a wedding feast early on in John says, we're out of wine. And I'm sure it was respectful in those days, but he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Teens, don't try that at home. But he says, my hour hasn't come yet. And then, then when he would heal people, he would say, don't tell anybody who I am or what I've done. And it wasn't until the end of three years of ministry that Peter finally gets it and says, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. It wasn't until his resurrection, his powerful resurrection, this passage says he was declared, he was horizoned to be the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit's enlivening him, him coming from the dead. And now that is what took the apostles from fishing to proclaiming the gospel to the death of 11 of them by martyrdom. What happened? It was the powerful resurrection. That same power is what is available to the Christian, and we'll see that in the book of Romans. It is the power that will help you put to death sin in your life. It's the power over addictions. It's power to soften your hard heart. You say, my heart's cold, and I don't want it to be cold, or it tames a bitter, vitriolic tongue. It'll give you peace with God. This resurrection power not only rescues you and justifies you, but it sanctifies you. And don't miss this phrase. You don't see it in our English translations, but when he says there, resurrection from the dead, it, it, it is plural, and it means resurrection from the dead people. You say, well, that's kind of awkward. I can see why they're trying to smooth that out a little bit. I wish they hadn't. Because you remember our study, perhaps, in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. His resurrection from the dead was just the start. And everyone who places their faith in Christ, they're also going to what? Rise from the dead. I mean, you have an apple tree out in your yard, and you plant that thing, and you wait for some fruit. You get your first apple. You don't cut it down and say, we got our apple. No, you're saying, honey, we got our first apple. We got a lot more what? Coming. You see, the glory of who Jesus is is declared in his resurrection, but it will be declared even greater as all of us who follow in this powerful resurrection. I want to finish with our responsibility, and I have to be brief here. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's called our Lord. We don't hear a lot of talk about the Lordship of Christ, and I find that unfortunate. We have an emaciated form of Christianity today that speaks of having a Savior without a life that's changed. Throughout the New Testament, we don't discover anyone who believes in Christ whose life isn't radically changed. I mean, listen to 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. We have a gospel now that is spoken of, faith without repentance or justification that doesn't lead to sanctification, or I have a reservation in the next world, but I don't need to obey in this world. Folks, that is not the gospel that he's going to speak of here. He's saying that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but he's our Lord. I mean, this started in Luke 2. The announcement 
Unto you is born this day a Savior who is what? Christ the, the Lord. In Acts 2, quoting from Joel, Peter says, And whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Colossians 2, verse 6 says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. There is no salvation from a Savior who is not also your Lord. Now, we have talked about a Savior who saves people without being their Lord, but, but it is a make-believe gospel. You won't find it in your New Testament. Of people who receive Jesus as like an add-on to their life, but it doesn't change their life. If any person is in Christ, they are a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Believer, this was normal. Jesus Christ, our Lord. You say, well, how does this work? I want to finish with this. This is a weak illustration, but it's the only one I have. All right, that's a bad way to preface an illustration. But, but I remember living in Mississippi. We lived in Natchez, Mississippi. It was close to the Louisiana border. We were in the bayous. And we lived for a few years. We lived in a trailer, mobile home, whatever you call it. Behind our house was a pond called Water Moccasin Pond. That was the name of the pond. It had an official sign. And the reason it was water moccasin pond because you could hear the water moccasins go into the water. And there were times, my dad had a garden behind our trailer, and there were times where we would be out in the backyard and there was a water moccasin, big one. And I remember dad would always be the hero, but I remember one particular time where he came out with my mom's cast iron frying pan. And my brother and I are freaking out. He takes that cast iron frying pan and he nails that water moccasin over the head, flattens the head. He saved us. But he had to be Lord and subdue the enemy first. And that's exactly what our Lord Jesus has done. He has subdued the enemy. He's purchased us with his own blood. And now we are his bond slaves. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel proclaims that our response is no taking him as Savior without acknowledging him as Lord because he can't be Savior unless he first subdues the enemy. And he has. And Paul says, I'm the great example. And he finishes Timothy by saying that the Lord saved him, a murderer, so that there would be an example to all of us that God can save anyone. And his grace is amazing. And today, if you have not turned to him in saving faith, he is your Greater David, he is your Christ. He's the one who's defeated your enemies, and now he will save your soul. And all you need to do is turn from your sins and call on the name of the Lord. Maybe that's going to be you today. I want to encourage you, if you've never trusted in Christ, call on him today in saving faith, and he will rescue you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the scriptures, the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We praise you that these promises that were given, that were concealed in the Old Testament have now been revealed in the New. And Lord, we pray that as your people, as we study this great book, that you would transform us. Oh Lord, we, we, we feel like the hymn writer, while others you're calling, please don't pass us by. You've used this book in such an amazing way in the history of the church, and we ask for you to do that at East Brandywine Baptist Church that you'd set our hearts ablaze with the gospel. 
Lord, that we would be able to understand the depths and the height and the breadth and the width. To know the love of God which passes knowledge. That Christ would be rooted and anchored and built up in our soul. Lord, we pray these things for the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen.